This podcast is recorded on the stolen, unceded territory of the Tanaha Kinbasket peoples. Hello, hello. Long time no talk. Thank you for sticking with me and tuning back into the first episode of Everything Economics in a while. Um, as you can imagine, I just needed a bit of a break from this podcast. Um, it was getting really, really stressful and overwhelming given world events, pandemic, Black Lives Matter. This has been a lot going on. So reading about other tragedies was just a bit much to handle and I was instead putting my energy into other things like streaming and then also doing work in the background to unpack my own white supremacy. So that's where I've been um, but I'm really excited to be back. In this episode I had a really really good chat with Ryan December who is an author for the Wall Street Journal and recently published a book called Underwater. It's all about housing and what happened leading up to the housing market crash, the global financial crisis, and then the aftermath of that. So I learned a lot of interesting things reading his book. I haven't finished it yet. I will confess I am a slow reader. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of new stuff in there that I hadn't really known before as someone who had looked at this subject at university, for example. So it's really good. I highly recommend the book and I hope you enjoy this conversation. But yeah, how, how has life under COVID been for you? It's been, you know, I, working for the newspaper, I've been very thankful that I've had like uninterrupted, not only uninterrupted employment, but like obviously for news, it's been very busy. I have to cover, I cover uh, commodity markets and like real assets for the paper. Yeah. So like oil prices went crazy and then lumber prices because of homes being built and stuff. And So there's been a lot of, uh, between the book coming out and work, it's been, it's been nice to be, I've been very thankful and very busy. <laughs> it's gone by very fast and you know, I had, like, because I was writing the book, I had, like, a home office that I had set up for myself. So I had, like, you know, a comfortable place to work. And I have some of my colleagues I feel bad. They had, like, you know, punched over a laptop for weeks and months. And so. Oh, yeah. I am very thankful for everything. But, yeah, living in New York has certainly been sort of strange. It's kind of a weird place right now. If yeah. You imagine. Yeah. Because um, it's been pretty, like, intense in New York. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and it's, like, gotten better. Like, things are, you can, like, especially because the weather's good, you can, like, go to, like, the cafes and restaurants and stuff. Some, you know, you can go outside and all the little decks and stuff. But I sort of worry about winter when all those things close. And, like, the small businesses in the neighborhood are starting to close up shop. And there's, like, lots and lots of mattresses on the, you know, sidewalk every day for garbage day because people are moving out. Uh, sort of, you can sort of see like all those people that were like, let's go to New York and try to make it doing, you know, whatever it is, their dream. And then, you know, maybe they're supporting themselves as bartenders or 
waiters or whatever, and then like, you know, they have no means to support themselves, or maybe their parents were helping subsidize their efforts to catch on in some career. And you just see all those like young people just kind of packing up and going home. It's sort of that's sort of sad. But there'll be others. They'll come. A new a new batch will come. Yeah. Some yeah. Point. Yeah, it was a bit like yeah. that. Um, cause I, so we, we just moved to Kimberley, which is in the Kootenays um, in BC for that, that oh, mountain okay. life. But yeah, that was only at the end of June. Before that, we were living in Vancouver, BC, and in this big apartment building. And it was, yeah, it was just... I'd never seen so many people moving in like the year that we'd lived there. I just felt like every yeah. every week there was people moving out and there were people who had clearly been there for such a long time. Um, yeah, and were, everyone was just going, but the the rentals weren't going back on the market because there was an eviction ban in the city, so the landlords didn't uh. want to rent it out knowing that people could just be like, yeah, I can't actually pay rent because I'm unemployed. <laughs> Um, ah, wow, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it was... That is wild. It's pretty full-on. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, that's great. So, like, they're just sitting on empty apartments. So they're like, we don't want to get people in here. We'd rather just keep them ready. Pretty much. For when there is eviction. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a really... Yeah. Um, the housing market in Vancouver is... Is terrible. Oh yeah, like it's, I've heard of that. Yeah. Like, wasn't there like a lot of like foreign money coming in to like park for investments and stuff? But... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of yeah. similar to what we're going to talk about today with your book. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I started reading it. I will admit, I am a slow reader, but that's okay. So I've much. definitely been um, enjoying the the first introduction to how. Because this is this like there there are some things that I just never even considered with how the property boom really took off. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, do you want to tell us a bit about how you started this book? And in those first chapters, it seems like a lot of that information came from your job at the paper you were working at, reporting on these. Yeah. These things. Yeah. So, like, so this all started, um, you know, around. 2003, I got out of college and sent my resumes everywhere and paper in Mobile, Alabama called. And I was living where it was very snowy at the time in Cleveland, Ohio, and they were like, hey, do you want to come and write about the cover of the beach? Like, I didn't even know Alabama had a beach at the moment. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to live at a warm, sunny beach. Uh, and I got there, and I was like immediately, just instantly blown away that of the real estate development that was going on. Just you know, like who I drove through countryside and like trailers and like saw some of the, the most like poverty, highest levels of like poverty in terms of like what you could just see from driving by that I'd ever seen in my life in South Alabama. And then I got to the beach and it was just like, it looked like Miami, you know, like glassy high rises. And, and they were building them like crazy. The sky was full of cranes. And as I started writing about like the city council and that, you know, that's my job and the planning commission and all these things, sort of just like kind of community city, city hall news, I saw like the, the huge projects were coming in. And I, right away, I was like, who is buying these 
right? Like there's only so many people that come down here. There's not, it's not like Florida. There's not a big airport. It's like, where's the, who is this? What is driving this? And I, so I went to the, 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 the realtor who was sort of most, the most successful realtor down there, a guy by the name of Bob Shallow. And I'm like, Bob, I read something, a blurb in a real estate, uh, you know, column and, you sold like a whole building that doesn't exist yet in like less than an hour. You sold like, you know, like 20 some million dollars worth of vacation properties that don't exist. And the way they wrote about it in the real estate column, it was just a little blurb. Like it happens all the time. And I'm like that. My mom is a real estate agent. And like, you know, she might sell a few houses a year, modest houses, you know, houses that cost, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. Here, this guy's selling four hundred thousand dollar condos that don't even exist yet, and like the next day, somebody's selling them to somebody else for more. And I was like, "Well, that is that's really wild. I have to figure out how this works and learn about this because this is driving all these construction projects. It just keeps getting more and more ambitious. Um, and you know, from just a layperson, it just didn't make sense. It's like the price is getting out of control. Somebody's going to have to pay that full price." at the end of the day and you're having condos go from, you know, maybe they sold before they existed for $400,000. And by the time somebody's moving in, when the building's built 18 months later, there's $700,000. And you're like, what? That, who, who's going to pay that final price? Who wants the keys? Well, it turns out a lot of people did. They just wanted to hold them with very little money down, sort of hold the rights to them, almost like a stock option where you pay a little bit to hold a stock and then sell to somebody else for more. And then, of course, they get the difference. They never really risked any of their own money. And there were small banks, large banks from out of town, and you know, national lenders that were just fueling this by giving investors, many of whom didn't have the wherewithal to, to actually buy the condo or afford it, uh, basically a slip of paper saying they were good for it, and then developers could get their construction loan and say, look, we have all these people who want a condo and they're good for it. Uh, and they've given us these sort of like letters from the bank saying they'll, they'll pay for it. And that's just that people just use those to, to trade these, these, these bits of real estate that didn't exist yet, sort of speculatively. And you would have condos that would trade five, six, seven times before they were done, before they were finished. And so that was just, that just sort of blew my mind. And it seemed like, you know, the whole country is in a real estate frenzy, but that was like above and beyond anything that I had ever heard of or like sort of could, could fathom. Um, and so I sort of made that my, uh, a big part of my work in Alabama, like explaining this crazy money party that's happening, uh, and like really in, in changing not just the nature of the place, you know, like these projects were so big that they were literally changing like sort of the geography of this island, uh, this resort area that I was, that I was living in Orange Beach and Gulf Shores, Alabama. And so that was like, that was such a sexy topic to write about. So fascinating. And, you know, I should have probably, you know, in hindsight, I should have never bought a house in that market. <laughs> but I sort of always thought that this was something that people were doing on the beach and these towers. And but then it started catching on. People were doing subdivision um, near where I lived. And, you know, you'd have the guy that, that worked hanging drywall and he'd have a contract to buy three houses on a golf course that would, you know, total over a million dollars. And you're like, this guy could never actually afford these. Why is he allowed to buy the future of, you know, them as a future essentially and trade them? 
And that was going on all over. And of course, that didn't end well. You know, it happened. The whole thing blew up. And it really, the, the, the crash, the housing crisis wasn't apparent to me. At first, I thought when it, when it all started falling apart, when, when, you know, the condos would be built and I'd say, hey, come close on your brand new condo, which you agreed to pay $700,000 for or a million point two or whatever it was. And the people would be like, well, I don't have the money. I just wanted to flip it and sell it to somebody else. I can't close. So me, the buyer, the, the balking buyer, and the developer are going to go to court and fight. And, of course, then the developer's in trouble because he can't pay his construction loans. And then everything's, you know, then the banks get hurt. And then the investors and the banks. And, it, you know, it just sort of cascades. And I saw that happening on the beach in this area before sort of the people in my neighborhood started losing their homes to foreclosure because they had lost their jobs and couldn't pay the mortgage anymore or, you know, that sort of stuff. And so I always thought like sort of the bigger narrative of the financial crisis, which was that it was a subprime crisis that people who, who shouldn't have been able to buy homes who couldn't afford it were, were able to buy homes and that tipped everything into a, a turmoil, the whole market. And sort of how I thought was that speculators had had played this this very risky game and had gone for very made some fabulously wealthy, but then when the music stopped, it left a lot of people uh, in a lot of trouble, owing a lot of money, and bankrupted people from millionaires to regular uh, you know school teachers and policemen and firefighters who got caught up in this stuff. And you know that it just. It didn't square with like the subprime thing, the, the narrative. Um, so I'd always been interested in that. Like, from my perspective, everyone, all the big projects on the beach went bust. There were no jobs in construction, uh, which and, and real estate agents, and that was what people did in this area. And then once the knock-on effects of that sort of speculative bubble burst, then everybody else started having problems. And by then, you know, banks were, were hurting and they're going to be less willing to work with a buyer uh, that, you know, maybe some working person who lost a job and can't afford their mortgage and needs help. By then, the banks have been so stung by all the speculators who have walked away uh, from their sort of underwater investment that, you know, they didn't have the wherewithal or, you know, desire to, to help the next wave of people. And those were the people who were actually living in the homes they were losing, as opposed to investors who... You know, you could have somebody with four or five properties and they can go, they can have four foreclosures and still have a house to live in, you know. And then the second wave, regular people, they didn't, they of course didn't have that option. Um, and so that's how I always saw it play out in my experience and where I live. And so it, it never really squared with the bigger picture narrative. And then, you know, now in hindsight, now that economists can see sort of, you know, anonymous credit data of, you know, millions of people, and crunch the numbers, they sort of see that, oh, that's actually sort of, that, that, that is what happened. There was a big speculative bubble that burst, a lot of foreclosures related to that, and then a second wave of sort of regular people. And, of course, there was a lot of mortgage fraud. There were a lot of people that got, you know, that were able to buy homes that couldn't afford them, but there were never enough to account for as many foreclosures as there were. Um, and that was sort of the, the, the tricky thing of, that never made sense to some people. And now economists can look back and see there was two distinct waves of foreclosure. The first were people that generally have more than one first mortgage, meaning like, you know, they would have a mortgage on their own property and then a mortgage on an investment property and maybe more. Um, and there's been really interesting research that showed that in that time, 
if people, once they had two homes and two mortgages, they were, uh, it's almost exponentially more likely to get a third property or a fourth property if they had three or a fifth if they had four. Um, but yeah, that was definitely saying that surprised me was, yeah, all of the speculation. Like, I kind of knew that it existed, but even even as someone who had, you know, been at uni during the fallout of a lot of this stuff, studying economics, it was all about the, the subprime mortgages and that's really what, like, the media presented and then movies talked about that mostly. Um, so I was actually just reading reading about that in your book. I was just like, oh, my gosh, of course. <laughs> like, of course it wasn't just yeah. these people were just trying to get the house, you know, because I think it was just so easy to blame that yeah. cohort of people and there, a lot there of the was time. Some egregious, yeah, and there were egregious examples of loan officers inflating people's income, and maybe the people inflated their income on the documents. You know, there was there was plenty of that, but not enough to to, to tilt the market the way it did. Um, and, you know, and honestly, that's just another form of that's just the bankers and the loan officers wanting to make their numbers and make money. So that was sort of a uh, sort of a speculative greed thing, too. Like the bank, the bank that I featured in the book, Vision Bank, was a very small lender uh, down in South Alabama. And they they gave out these letters of credit to, to the clients and their, their customers and, and basically the friends of the guys who ran the bank just sort of willy-nilly you know oh they're good for it they're good for it and they they would do you know not only fueling sort of the speculative boom and condo flipping where you you never even wanted the keys to the place and you didn't want to have you didn't actually want to own the real estate you wanted the right to buy the real estate then they started, you know, lending to homeowners. So the people who live next to me got a, a note from Vision Bank or a, a mortgage from Vision Bank. Vision Bank gave them whatever the money they wanted to buy the house because, you know, my neighbor signed the, the loan documents one day and the next day Vision had turned them over to a much larger bank that uh, was part of Citibank that bundled mortgages into a bond and sold them off. And, you know, those were sort of the loans that went bad. So like the bank, the local bank that made the loan had no, you know, they got rid of it before the, before the week was out, let alone before the first payment was due. So they had no risk at all. And so they were just, you know, they were making fees left and right, just giving out, basically handing out free money. Um, so, you know, there was some of that too, but the speculative stuff is really uh, interesting. And now that we can see, you know, the data, it's just like, it's very black and white. There's been, been some uh, professor that, Duke at MIT uh, Pitt that has done a lot of work, really interesting work on this. And, you know, one thing about regular people, we always thought, like you said, subprime, oh, it's poor people that, you know, got, you know, tried to do something they shouldn't have done. When you look at the data, the lower earning people, lower earning Americans, actually, their home ownership rate went down before the bust because home prices had risen so much in this frenzy, right? So they became less affordable for our earners and the numbers show that there were fewer mortgages made to those and home loans made not only during the sort of the, the run up, but like, you know, like a decade, the whole 2000, early, that first decade of 2000 when home prices were just going straight up. Um, and so, so you had fewer actually subprime people relative to the overall 
you know, there were more subprime borrowers than there were before, but relative to the the growth in other in prime borrowers, you know, and you could also look at the way that they judge prime and subprime and, you know, somebody who might not have great credit because they don't earn a lot and they have a lot of bills for whatever reason, uh, you know, they could have health care, they could have a lot of kids, they, you know, inherit debt, who knows the, the problems that regular people have, but then you have somebody with prime credit uh, and then they have four, they're on the hook for $4 million properties that they could never afford to pay for. Um, you know, maybe the way that we judge people's credit isn't great. If, if that could be a prime, you know, if that's the person that your system says give more money to and let borrow money cheaply, and the person who wants a home to live in so that they can get up in the morning and go to work every day, uh, maybe there's, you know, and there's there's been some really interesting academic arguments for, you know, the policy prescriptions for the crafts. Maybe maybe you should give somebody who's lower earning as much money as they can afford to pay back to buy a house because that's the way most Americans and, and probably also Canadians earn uh, accumulate wealth over time, right? So maybe we should give people who are lower earner as much money as cheap as we can so they can get on that, that, you know, that path to, to wealth accumulation and to have stable shelter and, you know, give their kids in the same school for, you know, and all these like great things that the, you know, Americans aspire to. Um, then maybe that if somebody wants to speculate uh, on properties, fine, but maybe they should use their own money to do that instead of, uh, you know, basically what is now taxpayer, uh, you know, backstops uh, that, you know, basically if you pay your phone bill on time, you, you know, and have a pretty good track record of paying your bills, you can go to the bank and, you know, leverage and speculative investment, you know, borrow 80%, 70% of, of the, what you, what you need, maybe more. And, you know, you couldn't do that if you went into the bank and tried to borrow, say, I want to buy, uh, you know, half a million dollars worth of Apple and Amazon shares, and can I borrow 80% of what it's going to cost me? They would laugh at you, right? Yeah. They would tell you to walk away. But if you did it for, uh, you know, a condo building, even one that doesn't exist, and you want to buy some units to to, to trade, they, okay, go talk to that guy in the corner. <laughs> you know, he'll do it for you. So it's really a sort of like in retrospect, we can sort of, by looking at the data, we can learn all this stuff about what happened and like sort of, the, the prescriptions for the problem that we maybe weren't able to like see and to, to come up with in the, in the time and right after the crash. Um, but now of course we have way more information and we can see what happened and, and we can sort of rethink this. Uh, maybe, maybe just tightening lending to everybody wasn't a good idea because it took, it forces low income people to be sort of a counter cyclical. They can only buy when the market's hot and prices are high and banks are willing to give up without money you know like people that couldn't have afforded a house in the run-up you know it would have been great for them if they were able to buy when prices collapsed and it would have helped to stop prices from falling if they were buyers um, you know even if they were low earning you know people could you know get a loan and move into this house and instead what happened is prices kept falling until they were so enticing that you know financiers and big wall street investors bought them and started buying them by the um, and now we have a situation where, you know, people, Americans earning six figures um, are renting more than ever, um, you know, sort of the, would be in another generation, people would be homeowners and they're renting. And some of that's because they, they don't, you know, it's hard 
And like now, because of COVID, you know, we have these like 2% or whatever mortgage rates, the lowest of all time. But for years, you know, banks were skittish about lending and you had to have a big down payment. And, you know, that probably kept, that gave Wall Street and people who were paying with cash a huge advantage over people that needed to borrow the money and have a traditional, you know, 30-year mortgage to pay it off over time. Um, and it's just put more and more of the housing stock in, you know, Wall Street's hands. And, you know, I think sort of opened up the chasm between, you know, sort of the upper class and the sort of, I don't say lower class, but lower earning people, um, you know, even wider than it's ever been in America. To the point where people can make a six-figure income and not be a homeowner in, in a lot of cities. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what you touched on earlier as well about just it, it kind of is like home ownership is the end goal for a lot of people because it does give you that secure housing and there should be some sort of guarantee around that that you can access it relative to what you earn um because yeah generating that's like that's how just the average person can generate wealth in a fairly low risk way because you're not susceptible to like big market crashes and it is kind of just a piece of paper in the end when you have a stock it's it's your physical home that you can live in and raise your family and there's nothing wrong with anyone wanting to do that like it's pretty normal you get told for most of your life that that's that's a great thing to do um just to support yourself um but yeah and and, you know americans have such a poor track record uh the last maybe half century of saving we are really bad at saving and the way that most americans save is by accident when they make the mortgage payment uh every month and a little bit goes into the equity in the home and you know it's sort of if you don't get get on that track and, and own the home in america you're, you're probably not saving um you know statistically speaking you're probably you know unlikely to be a great saver you know germany is really interesting they have a very high Mentorship rate, low homeownership rate, but they are great savers. They save way better than us. Uh, personal savings rate is way higher. And so, like, in a culture like that, and for whatever reasons, however that developed, you know, Germans know that they have to save uh, because they're not going to be selling a home when they're older to pay for their, you know, for them to live the 30 or years that they're retired, but, you know, not working, but still, you know, alive or, you know, all these, these things we have to worry about. So it's like, it's sort of this housing crash has set us up for potentially a really, really bad retirement crisis down the road. And people, you know, maybe a few years older than me down to, you know, people who were probably born in like the mid to late eighties, you know, people who were just starting out then, um, lost their, got knocked off to sort of the, you think of it as like an escalator. If you get knocked off, you know, you might not get back on or if you get back on, everybody else is way ahead of you and you never catch up. And it was just, so it, it was so big and so sort of widespread that it, it's going to have this effect. And, you know, the Wall Street sort of firms that, that rent houses, they sort of see themselves, well, we, we stopped, you know, the bleeding. We, we set a floor on once we started buying these cities, home prices stopped falling because we just bought everything that, that was, you know, say 50% of, of what it would cost to build or replacement value. Well, you know, and now they offer these homes and you could rent a nice house and a good suburb and your kids can go to the certain schools and all, but 
it is just a rental. Like you said, it's like it, you lose that security of, okay, this is mine. And as long as I can pay this, this amount that is sort of, you know, maybe aside from the taxes, uh, or if you have a variable rate, you know what you're going to be paying for, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and that's not the case with rents, especially a public company that got pressure to always boost its, uh, revenue and its profits from its investors and on Wall Street. And so you don't have that sort of certainty. And, you know, if the home prices go up and down, it's, it's really bad if you're, if they go down and you're speculating. But if you live in the house, like, you don't, you don't always really care what your house is worth if you're living in it and you don't plan to sell it, right? Yeah, exactly. it, it serves that other function of shelter, right? And, like, yeah. it's your home. So it's, like, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, like, it, you know, during the crash, there was this one hedge fund that made a fortune. They made a couple billion dollars. Um, they they bought, everybody else was like, okay, bonds that are filled with second mortgages, those second mortgages are going to be, out of the money, right? The home prices have fallen well below into the, you know, the first mortgages. So the second mortgage is worthless. So by that math, it's like, okay, get rid of this. If you can get a penny on the dollar for this asset, this bond, then, then do it. Well, this hedge fund took another view and they said, sure, there's going to be a lot of people that can't and afford and lose their homes. There's going to be a lot of fraudulent mortgages. We can, you can, you can find out the, figure out which ones are those were fraudulent and, you know, pursue the banks and the lenders for restitution for fraud. And, but then, you know, say if there's, you know, maybe half of these people, they don't care. They don't care if their home is worth the collateral value is is less than what they owe because they live there. Like they're not thinking about it the same way Wall Street does is a financial asset, it's home. And they made a bunch of money because they realized people, you know, they're not going to just walk away from a house just because it's not worth what they owe. They still live there. Um, and they sort of took that, uh, like that human perspective and it rewarded them richly because a lot of people did keep paying their second mortgages and the bonds, you know, gained their value because the payments were made and investors got their interest payments. And it was like, oh. You know, just because the homes are worth less doesn't mean everybody's going to abandon them because they're, it's not Wall Street. It's not just a pure financial calculation. It's home. Uh, and so that was sort of an interesting, like, little side thing that happened in the crash is that a lot of people and – and it sort of highlights, like, sort of how you have Wall Street and the investor thinks of a home and then, you know, a regular person. And those two things have really come into conflict, those two forces. And the trick is, like, you know, one house, you could have two almost identical houses sitting there next to each other, and one is sort of a, a home shelter, and one is a financial asset. And, you know, you can't really separate the two. They're both in the same market. Uh, so the more you have people treating like financial assets, that's, you know, how homes are going to be treated uh, and how, you know, the market will gyrate more and have more volatility in prices and you know, all these things that, that you don't want to see uh, with something that should be a very stable, uh, you know, expense for people, a stable, uh, an asset that holds a stable value. Yeah, for sure. And I think when you're just, when you own, when you have a mortgage and say it's just your only one, um, you also have a lot more negotiating power than if you're renting. Like you can say, okay. Right. 
the price, like the market's kind of crashing. Interest rates are really low. I'm going to go to my bank and, you know, renegotiate my interest rate or, you know, switch to paying only interest because I'm out of work right now. Um, whereas you can't do that when you rent. <laughs> no. I mean, no. And in, in rare yeah. cases you can, but for the most part, you can't, you don't have that control over over your housing costs. So, right. Yeah, super interesting. And it's, you know, what we we have a great example of it now with, with COVID, right? Like most mortgages, um, you know, the bulk of countries' mortgages are guaranteed by the federal government and they're under the federal regulation. So the regulators at uh, FHFA that oversee Fannie and Freddie have said, look, we're not doing any foreclosures. There's no foreclosures, right? Uh, they haven't said what will happen when there are foreclosures again. They haven't said, like, oh, everybody's going to just take those missed mortgage payments and put them on the back of their mortgage, or uh, you have to make you know under whole right away. We don't know what will happen, but they have said you can't throw people out for not paying the mortgage right now. Um, and there's no government entity that oversees rentals and can say there's no evictions right now. I mean, certain jurisdictions have it, but not federal. So you're seeing in cities, uh, the journal, Wall Street Journal, where I work, we've had stories about uh, Houston and New Orleans among the cities that people are getting thrown out of of their apartments. If they were homeowners, that wouldn't be happening because the government uh, regulator that's got their basically guaranteed the mortgage is saying, you know, we're not, no one's getting kicked out right now. We're going to you know, that to come up with some solution and who knows what the solution will be or if it'll be a good one. But for now, at least people aren't being thrown out the streets for not making their mortgage payments, but they can be thrown out for not making their rent payments. And that just sort of, that just makes it harder for the people to ever get that stability. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Evicted, uh, Matthew Desmond's brilliant book. And it's like the, the, the ability for sort of just stable housing to have that in your life, like, cannot be overstated and what that means. And on the flip side, if you don't have stable housing, how just terrible that can be and how you can never really get on your feet um, if you're always being thrown out of places and shuffling around and losing your possessions and, you know, their kids are moving from school to school and, you know, never rooted. And, you know, you can just think of all the problems that causes. And, you know, now that we have this huge disruption, economic disruption, it's, frankly, it's bringing a lot of people to probably thought they were middle class and, and sort of thought they were higher up on the sort of socioeconomic ladder, and it's probably bringing them down, and it's making a very, you know, as large a chasm as ever between sort of the haves and have-nots in America. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you see the like major consequences of this speculative buying um, yeah. have been. Um, and I guess just like, so if I think about Vancouver, there is a lot of foreign, foreign home ownership and it is just speculative. So the, the city and the province introduced like an empty homes tax. But for people who are building and oh, buying yeah. condo buildings, it's the cost of doing business for them you know like they can afford yeah. the fine 50 grand is the drop in the bucket um so yeah i'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about the consequences for 
everyone, and yeah. then particularly those middle class and lower earners. And then, what is there a way out of this? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the um, bigger question. Well, I mean, the consequence, yeah. Well, like, the consequence is, like... Um, Let's use an example of somebody who's, who does earn by, by standard sort of probably me and you, what we think of as pretty good living. Let's say it's a household that makes $100,000 a year. Uh, maybe it's a couple and they have, you know, maybe a combined income of 100, maybe a low $100,000. Uh, now, maybe they uh, have a ton of student debt because they had to get these degrees to um, get the jobs to pay so well. But that doesn't leave them with a lot of cash to uh, save for a down payment. And, you know, maybe they needed a 20% down payment uh, to buy a house and prices were low and they couldn't, they couldn't muster that. So they rent and they can rent a really nice house uh, because of these Wall Street firms that have bought in, you know, many of the most desirable suburban neighborhoods around, you know, the growing cities where these sort of people, you know, move to work. Let's say it's like a Denver or something. Well, okay. You have this nice house that's, this maybe in the neighborhood you would want to buy in, but you, you're you're paying rent. You have no um, no security over what you're going to pay year to year. Um, you know that company's goal, and you know their corporations, their stated you know their allegiance and their duties are to their shareholders and to make more money. So you know they've got humans running them, and there's a little you know they could be you know they could be accommodating if there's a natural disaster or something like COVID or whatever you know. But ultimately, those companies need to show growth. So they're going to push rents up and they're going to be aggressive with fees and all these sort of things. Um, you know, they, they will probably not, they'll do what they can to keep you in the house as long as possible because, you know, it's a great cost to have a house sitting empty and have to repaint it for every tenant every year. Um, and they want you to be in there. But then, you know, maybe you never save because you're not putting money into the house uh, through your mortgage payment. And, you know, what are those people, you know, when it's time to retire, what are those, you know, we don't have, very few of us have pensions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, companies have put the onus on the, on the employees to save through 401ks. And, you know, that's at the mercy of another uh, market, the stock market, which is like, who, who can make sense of that right now? The economy is the real life economy is pretty bad and you know tens of millions of people are out of work and stocks are shooting to all-time highs so it's like you know it's hard to have a lot of confidence that that's going to be stable or that it's going to be like when you need it it's going to be up and and good and you know think of all the people that probably have to draw and retire uh when they're when they're 401k crashed you know and it was just happened to be the time that they needed the money um, so you put more and more reliance on that in the stock market to like carry people through. And we know how that can be incredibly risky and uh, sort of terrifying to probably most people to know that they're, 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 they're basing it just on like happenstance and luck uh, in the stock market uh, to have any sort of retirement and security. And, you know, if, if you're paying, you know, American homes for rent or invitation homes or one of these big companies, if you're paying them $2,000 a month. Um, you know, that might work when you're uh, earning $100,000 and your kids are in school or whatever. But when you retire, how long can you keep that up, you know, if you don't have, you know, the, most most Americans would, you know, say, okay, well, the kids are all gone. Let's sell the bigger house. We'll buy a smaller house and move into an apartment or a condo or, 
you know, we'll use the extra money and that's what we live off of. You know, people won't have that. So I think the, the, the big risk is that there's a, a pretty, there's a high risk of a, a what I'd say it's like a retirement crisis on the horizon for people who are, you know, it, people aren't in a good position to retire now generally in America, like uh, the boomers and sort of the late boomers who haven't retired yet. Uh, it's been pretty well documented. They're, they're probably pretty unprepared financially um, for various reasons. And then you have the people that were sort of born in the 70s and 80s who got really hammered by the housing crash and like the, the terrible economy that they graduated into and the just enormous explosion of student debt and now this COVID thing. And, you know, those people just, they're, they're just going to be just not prepared to take care of themselves financially uh, if they're not working. And so society's going to have to figure out something to do in the future. Uh, it might have to be drastic. Like, you know, we have to set up the original social security and things like that. Um, I would think that's sort of the big picture consequence of all this is that you're going to have a bunch of people who, as America, we set the system up to, you know, the home is the piggy bank. The government will help subsidize that purchase. Um, you know, we, we're all trained to do this thing, and the system's set up for us to do this thing, which is to buy a house and accrue equity. But if you can't ever start, you know, like, that's the system. That's how, we, that's, since World War II, that's how the system's been shaped. And if that's not available to, to most people, and certainly at least the middle class are like the sort of, you know, people who are earning what's, what's a good, considered a good wage and should be a really nice, you know, wage that, that can get you through life. And then you don't have any retirement. Like that's, that's a big problem. And that, that'll come, you know, that could take decades and, you know, to, to come to bear, but that's sort of the looming crisis um, down the road, I think. And, as far as you know, what what can what can help? I mean, really, right now we're seeing a huge home buying boom because the government's response to to the economic shutdown related to COVID is to make borrowing costs like as low as possible. Um, so you have sort of all the sort of millennial aged people who are you know, well into adulthood now and are probably like, you know, maybe now's the time. The city's not as fun as it used to be. Maybe now's the time to go out and buy the place in the suburbs or, you know, look at rates are never going to be this low again. Let's go buy. And that's really fueling things now. But, you know, that probably won't last. Those buyers will probably run out. The demand will be sated uh, at some point. And then you're going to have the people who are in houses who have lost their incomes and their, you know, how are they going to keep paying for their homes? And what's going to happen when the federal regulators say, you know what, okay, the economy is looking good, you can foreclose again. And, you know, who knows how many people there's, you know, late payments piling up. And, of course, we don't know whether people are doing that strategically because uh, they're nervous about their employment and they're holding their cash. Or if they can't pay, we don't really know, but we do know that, that, that delinquent payments are just piling up rapidly. And that, you know, if banks were allowed to foreclose today, there'd probably be a huge foreclosure crisis going on right now. Uh, so the, the policy prescriptions could probably, could be related to like borrowing costs. It could be related to, um, you know, things like Fannie and Freddie saying, you know, this generation is so mired in student debt. Um, let's let the, the down payments be lower. Let's calculate, um, 
people, let's give people a little wiggle room on how much debt they can have. If it's student debt and they show they're able to repay and they have a good track record of paying their bills. It could be things like that that just make it, that help people buy homes. Um, you know, it could be, you know, that maybe this generation of people has been so stung now by two giant economic crises that, you know, this generation will be much better savers than previous ones. And maybe people will do it for themselves and like sort of manage themselves uh, away from the, the sort of uh, head off the crisis. Um, there's no evidence that's happening or that it will happen, but it could, you know, people's behavior could change. We, we, the, the old saw is like, you know, oh, somebody's grandma who, you know, grew up in the depression and she still saves like her lunch bags, like for, uses one bag the whole week or, you know, has some weird quirks to save money and be, conscientious you know that it could be that there's a whole generation of, of, of people maybe two generations of people who've gone through these crises that uh now behave a lot differently than their uh, predecessors uh, because they things have gotten so uh tough to them twice early on in their lives yeah for sure um but i think yeah the saving thing in particular is difficult like even even though borrowing costs are so low not everyone necessarily has 10 20 grand um yes. sitting in their bank account and i think the other side to this ability to borrow is just the fact that wages have stagnated for like the past 20 years so i think there's definitely oh, going to yeah. be some reform around around that too and just be like just stop <laughs> stop lining rich yeah maybe, this, maybe it's... And redistribute a bit of that to the labor you know that you're employing yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Maybe it's as easy as boosting pay to, to keep up with expenses. Like you said, um, you know, numbers we've crunched for various stories in recent years about this sort of stuff with the journal. It's like, you know, the, the median earning person can't afford the median home, medium priced home in very many cities, certainly not the ones that are growing the fastest and have the best employment opportunities. You know, so you have this sort of, um, you know, if the regular person can't buy the regular house, who's buying the houses? What happens to the regular people? And then you have all the people who aren't, you know, who are lower earning. What do they do? You know, is that, who, you know, who takes care of them? And, you know, and the, the obviously the lending is very, um, you know, redlining is illegal, but I'm sure you can find evidence that, you know, banks are still more willing to, to loan in certain areas to certain types of people. Uh, more so than others. And, you know, that you, you probably have to examine things like that, uh, to, to really fix things. Um, but it, it gets to a point that, you know, and, and like, it, say you could say you did have the 20,000 or 50,000 to do a down payment. Um, do you want to do that? Do you want to put your life savings at risk if, like, in a time like now when, like, yeah. massive, Blue chip employers are laying off thousands of people. Like you could put everything you have into a home in a rapidly rising market where you you might be paying too much, um, and then what? It, you know, you would have to be so confident in your employment to give up your savings and put your savings into a leveraged investment or purchase right now. I would think you know that. So there there could be a huge risk right now because home prices are really high. They're higher than they've ever been, um, and that sort of hard to square uh with you know like the unemployment numbers and things going on 
but like, you know, are you going to, that's essentially what you're doing if you buy a house right now and you put all your money into the down payment is you're putting your, you're betting on your ability to continue to make payments so that you don't lose your home and that money. Uh, if, if, you know, if you're, if you're, Home go if home prices fall ten percent. You put ten percent down. You're you're at zero. Your your money's gone. You know the bank the bank's going to get its first. So, um, and as we saw in the last crash, the banks usually don't get nearly what they put out either. So, you know, we get into taxpayer uh, you know bailouts and things like that. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a very it's it's sort of strange to look at the housing boom right now and see so many people rushing to buy. Um, with so much economic uncertainty, I would, be, I would be, I feel very confident in my unemployment and my continued like paycheck, but I would be very hesitant myself to like commit my savings to something at a, at a market top, you know? Yeah, exactly. Or what could be a market top? I don't know if it is. Of course, home prices could keep going and this could be like just some point along a long road up, but we don't know that. And we thought that last time terribly mistaken as a, as a country and as a sort of population. Yeah. And also, like, I remember looking a little bit at um, quantitative easing when that first became a thing. And just the, the way that we know that banks behave with cash injections that they get, maybe from a deposit and stuff, it's often just on other riskier investments, right, right? to try and you know, keep their profit margins up for their investors. And yeah, it's definitely multifaceted. Like I even think rent, like just a basic rent control or something like that yeah. would be beneficial. Or, um, And then I guess with the retirement crisis, um, living in, when I was living in Vancouver, it's it's cool to see there's a lot of, Chinese immigrants and they live in multi-generational homes and there is this culture of like the grandparents look after the grandchildren so the parents can work so then one day they can buy their home and then they like all the families they all look after each other but I just feel like in more western cultures we don't have that just built in as much no. um, so I wonder if there'll even be if, if that will come out of it, you know, kids moving home to look after their parents. That is and... interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's really interesting because the, the cost, it, you know, we talked about college costs, how they've exploded. And, you know, you, you kids come out of school now with, you know, six figures of debt where you used to be able to, you know, you could pay your tuition and your rent working minimum wage, uh, you know, in the 1980s. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think one of my colleagues is writing a book about that subject, but that's a whole other topic. But the the flip side of that is the end of life cost, you know, or having, um, you know, uh, you know, when you have like a grandparent or somebody who needs full time nursing um, or you know care, that is that is so so expensive. Oh yeah. Um, and you don't really see the cost going down. That's you know a function of real estate and insurance and drug prices and you know the the cost of the people that need the degrees to work with those people, the nurses and doctors and they're, you know, it, it just like sort of spirals out of control. So you have people just accruing this tremendous debt starting their adult life, this huge amount of debt, which they have to get rid of and then earn enough 
so that they can afford to like uh, not live like sort of like a pauper's lifestyle when they're like old and maybe uh, you know in poor health. And yeah, so your point in the multi generational stuff is is interesting. And you know um, this this whole COVID uh, thing and the work from home transition that we're seeing. Um, it's really interesting. Some of the builders, um, I, because of my job, I listen to a lot of what builders are saying about the homes they're building and the consultants that advise them. And, you know, even the rental home companies that are building these big homes explicitly to rent out. Like, there's a lot of thought going into that, uh, how to design a house. Uh, so now things like a home office are very important. Um, you know, you might want two home offices because you might have both parents working or you might need a room for the kids to do uh, distance learning or something yeah. like that. Um, you, your backyard is going to be, people are putting a lot more money into their yards and their decks and their patios and things like that because home is the new uh, place where you spend so much time and you uh, recreate and, you know, have your leisure time. And there's also that idea of will, you know, are kids staying at home longer because they have all this debt and the market's not good to go out and find a, a place or, yeah, our elderly parents coming back in do do sort of like the mother lost suite or the sort of you know back back a hundred years ago they used to build houses around here where I am in Cleveland the big old houses would have a tiny little staircase up to like a almost like a maid's quarters right like a little side apartment for the housekeeper or the maid or whatever um, you know do we do we do something or do you know, KB Homes and Toll Brothers and all these home builders, do they start incorporating that into their designs? Because, you know, it's gotten too expensive to send grandma to a, um, you know, care, uh, you know, to cover apartments and an elder care facility or something. Do we keep her here at the house? You know, is that, is it cheaper to put, you know, a few, a couple hundred square feet onto your, your home you're building or there your existing home? Uh, and it probably is. And, you know, and then, you know, what other benefits do you get of that? So this, there is a lot of rethinking what the American home should be designed like these days. And a lot of builders are putting a lot of thought to that. And they were sort of talking about it before, but the COVID thing has really ramped things up. And, and it's, you know, like we, our homes are going to be a lot different. We're going to be considering our homes as, uh, also as the places we work and, and learn and and, um, you know, maybe house other generations. Yeah, and I think that's, like, a good thing. It's forced, sort of forced employers to to be more adaptable. Like, I know people who got fired at the end of last year because they were working from home, and they're, like, yeah. software developers. It's like, you don't... So, like, I think that change, if, if you're lucky enough to work in a job that can move remote, will allow people to move to cheaper areas like my partner and I yeah because um, I don't need to be going to the office anymore um, so I think that will definitely right. help and yeah I'm it's it's cool that that's being put into the design because yeah sharing a home office can be difficult when yeah. you're both like having to be on the phone and I don't know sometimes you just want to like let out a big sigh and <laughs> yeah not Isn't stress the other like, person out wait, wait. like you go to an office and there's like my office with hundreds of people and you're like, but then you share an office with one person and it's almost unworkable. It's a different <laughs> what if you dynamic do it with too. Somehow it works. Yeah. yeah, it's so weird. And it's but it is, but it's you know like that's that's an office where you know your home is you know my my girlfriend and I live in she's also a reporter and you know she's 
been in the kitchen at the kitchen table uh, since March, and I've been in the little uh, room like where her closet is off the bedroom, you know, and we're holed up in a little New York City apartment, and it's like we had to be in New York City for our jobs, but now we're realizing like we don't really need to be here. Now, of course, we, she, she's a New York native, and uh, I, I love New York City, but like you don't really need to be there. And maybe, and, and it's happening a lot in San Francisco as well, uh, where, you know, these, San Francisco is kind of ironic because those companies are responsible for the technology that's sort of enabling this, us to work remotely. Um, and now they're realizing, oh, we don't need to be here. Therefore, like, we don't need to take up all the housing. Our workers can go elsewhere and, you know, buy a house that they never could in San Francisco or San Jose or wherever. And, you know, you're seeing benefits in cities like Boise, Idaho, and, you know, the cities in Texas and Phoenix and Las Vegas, where they're getting people, you know, moving. Denver is a big example of that, where they're getting a lift from these these people who uh, earn a good income and, you know, put their kids in the schools and, you know, all that stuff. And and it's not so concentrated in, like, you know, for a while there, we were getting to a point where there's like in, in the U.S., it's like, okay, there's like three cities, right? Maybe four if you count Houston in the energy industry. You got like uh-huh. D.C., New York, San Francisco, and, you know, maybe Houston. It's like you, you don't want to have, you don't want to force everybody to, that has a college degree and like, you know, various abilities to compete with each other for a home and these because they can only live in four cities because that's where those companies are. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, th- this whole thing, this whole, like, exodus from, from some of these cities could be a long-term, you know, could be some of the solution um, to getting a home. It's like, well, maybe we don't all have to get them around New York and San Francisco. Maybe we can go to Idaho or Oregon or, you know, wherever else. Uh, New England and, you know, New Jersey. Um, Connecticut's had a great revival since, this whole thing and Connecticut was really hurting for years um, and it's, you know the home market really picked up there uh, since, since COVID because people are okay I don't have to go to the I don't have to go to my office so why do I live in this tiny apartment uh, let me get some space for my kids and move out and then you know and maybe then that relieves some of the demand for apartments in the city and those people that do want to or need to work live in the city it can be a little more affordable um so that, that could very well, like some of the solutions to all this mess we're in, where people can't afford homes, maybe that's the solution. Maybe it's the ability to buy homes in much more of the country. You know, we have this giant country, and you do as well, and we tend to cluster in very small areas. Um, and maybe we don't have to do that anymore. And that was sort of the idea behind the suburbs originally. It's like, okay, everybody can own a home in America. We're just going to have to spread out. And that's what they did. And you know, they built highways and, and commuter rails and all these things so that to, to enable that. And maybe now we just have another sort of version of that where it's not even necessarily suburbs outside of cities, but crossing state lines and over much larger areas because we're able to telecommute. Totally. Or whatever it's called over a computer, I'm not sure. Zoom commute. <laughs> Zoom commute. Zoom, Zoom mute. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, yeah. That's a great point. Like that. That could really, you know, that could that, that could make things a lot easier for a lot of people who who are fortunate to be able to work in that world. Of course, that that's not everybody. A lot no. of people still have to show up for work. I I I will normally work in a, the town Manhattan office, and I've worked in my you know Brooklyn apartment for since March, and occasionally I'll I'll rent a car and you 
know, like on a vacation, I'll have to drive through Manhattan. And, you know, it was interesting seeing there's a lot of people that are going, that are back to work and that need to work, you know, and, and all those people don't have that luxury of, oh, let's just get rid of the apartment and go, you know, buy a nice place in Vermont or Boise or, you know, like let's go to Texas and pay very little taxes. And, you know, a lot of people don't have that luxury. So, um, but, you know, maybe if the people who do spread out, that is, it maybe leaves a little more room for those that need to be there. It would be nice to say, um, yeah, I really hope that uh, once there's, you know, a vaccine or treatment and things start to go back to, I don't want to say normal because normal wasn't exactly ideal as we've just been discussing. Yeah, normal is kind of weird too. (laughs) Yeah, um, (laughs) but when people can gather and things like that, I do hope that this option for remote works. Because obviously not everyone wants to do it, um, but personally I love it. Um, oh yeah. So I, I hope, I hope it sticks done. and doesn't just. Do you find that? Yeah. Do you find you get more done. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. I don't have to, like, I used to help p- answering the phones, and I don't have to answer the phone anymore, and it just saves me so much time. And yeah, I really like it. Yeah. If I want to take a break, I can like I... sweep my floor or just watch TV. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it really does help. Me, I, I found it helps me be more productive. If you know, never mind the commuting and the distractions of an office, but like sometimes you just don't have it, uh, and maybe you have it later in the day. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. you can focus better later, or maybe you need to work all night um, because something happens, and maybe you can just take it easy the next morning and <laughs> sleep in or something. And, you don't you don't feel compelled to conform to the nine to five and also get everything done, which for many of us requires more than a nine to five. So it's, in a way, it's sort of been sort of like relieving. Now, of course, I would much rather not have a global pandemic. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm not I'm not cheering it up, but like I would, it, it's definitely um, there's something to be said about the productivity. Um, now that our productivity is up, maybe maybe our wages to be revisited. But I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Yeah, that'd be nice to see. <laughs> I mean, I grew up yeah. in Australia, so moving to Canada and seeing what minimum wages here are, it's like, are you kidding me? I can't rent here. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's really amazing, and and sometimes I I like I just can't fathom how some people do it especially in places like where you in Vancouver, New York, where living expenses are so high. Yeah. I just can't, I don't, I look and I see the people that like, you know, the, the deli I used to go to by my office and those people work so hard and I know they don't make nearly as much money as they are worth or, you know, and it's probably not enough to get by. And it, it's probably one of the multiple jobs they have in a, in a household where there's multiple people working and trying to earn money and it's, you know, they probably live very far away from where they work, so they probably have to spend a lot of time commuting and not earning. And I just—it's really amazing that people can get by. And I don't—I don't—I can't even fathom how they do it sometimes. Yeah, it's—it's um, it's pretty unfortunate that that situation yeah. exists. Yeah. So, and then you have this situation where you know, are all those people to Delhi like? I don't even know if it's open anymore. Like, what are they? All, what have they been doing? You know, they, they don't have the luxury of logging in and going on their Zoom meetings or you know doing their work on Google Docs. 
or whatever. So, you know, it's putting a big, big chasm in, into society, I think. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I don't, I don't know exactly what happened in um, the U.S., but here in Canada, the federal government implemented CERB, which is like their emergency response. Um, and so if you were laid off because of COVID, you could get $2,000 a month guaranteed. And then people who were on the pension or disability got a top up of $300 to bring them closer to that amount. Um, and I work on a, a food program, so I liaise with a lot of food banks. And something that they mm -hmm. found is a lot of them have gotten much busier, but many of them have stopped seeing their regular clientele, which are seniors on the pension and people on disability because they don't need to be accessing the food bank anymore. And a lot of people who have been made unemployed are able to go and buy food and support themselves and choose what they eat, which I think is great. Like in a lot of ways, it's really wrong that when people are working, that they're still going to the food bank and now that they've got this, but... Yeah, it's, yeah, it's been right? a really interesting response that's kind of proven the need for good wages and some sort of guarantee just to, yeah, feed yourself. Yeah. It it really, yeah, it, it really is. And it just shows, like, you know, people talk about the minimum wage. And it's sort of, it's, it, that's always been, like, interesting. I grew up with, a, um, my parents had a hardware store, small business. And, you know, so they, they were paying people minimum wage. And a lot of their employees were like, um, you know, a retired guy who just wanted to do something a few days a week and like paying out the hardware store or, you know, me and my friends in high school who, would, you know, were cashiers or would unload their trucks and sweep and stuff. And, yeah. you know, minimum wage was fine for those people. Cause, um, but, you know, they really had a hard time. Um, and this, this may be unique to the U.S. or Canada, but like, Pretty early on, they couldn't have full-time employees because they couldn't afford the health care. Yeah. Uh, they just couldn't afford it. And so that means, okay, so if you don't have full-time employees, if you can't offer health care, you can't have full-time employees, you're not paying a lot, and then you're not getting people that you can rely on. Um, you're, you're probably not getting, like, the best candidates. And, you know, then, then you're working more. And, you know, like, they could never go on vacation because they didn't have anybody that could that could watch the shop, like literally watch the shop for a few days. Yeah, exactly. Um, because they couldn't afford the benefits. And it was always interesting because I would, you know, be the sort of the person, type of person to, oh, you know, minimum wage should be higher. And they'd be like, well, it would really hurt us instead of like three people at night. There'd be two people in the store and stuff. So it's interesting, but I don't, so I don't know how you fix that. And I sort of understand a little bit of the, 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 the argument to keep, it lower, but maybe there's not, maybe there's a minimum wage until you're like 18 or if you're, you know, maybe there's certain class, you know, like some way to, to, to pay people who are, you know, I don't know, how, but then, then you get into like discrimination and, you know, okay, there's, then there's any situation where there's like 15 or 17 year olds who might, you know, it might be the income, they might not be doing it for more than just, you know, movie tickets and you know money to play around with like you know you can't really it's sort of hard to yeah separate out things but yeah the minimum wage is just it's like a joke right like you can't 
I don't know how anybody survived on it. Yeah, I know. I think too with that situation because that's like often um, the argument that's put forward, which yeah, for, right? for mum and pop small businesses, absolutely fair enough. Um, if you had universal healthcare, I think that would help. Yeah, then it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. That takes away a lot of their expense and then they can pay more hourly. Yeah, right? and then um, I think there's like room to stop subsidizing large multinational conglomerates and make the local business viable, you know. Uh, but that's like a huge yeah. federal and global reform that's beyond yeah, just like... and it's been pretty... Yeah, the appetite for that lately has, has apparently been not very high, yeah. which is sort of baffling because it just, it just seems like such a no-brainer. Like, how can you have, like, these, the, one of the, you know, one of the richest countries ever and not, you know, have, like, a big chunk of the population not be able to go to the doctor? I know. It's, you know like, it just what? blows my mind. Like, I mean, this COVID thing, we, you have, like, okay, well, it might not kill you, but you might get sent to the hospital for a few weeks and you'll never be the same financially. You'll yeah. be broke forever. Yeah. You know, you'll be bankrupted. So like, you know, there's people like they might wish it would take them the way the, the bills that they're going to get for that uh, treatment and hospital stays. And that's just, it's just really insane to ponder. We, we did a um, really excellent story a few weeks ago. One of my colleagues wrote about, um, you know, the, 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 the people who are sort of the mystery cases who recovered but were, you know, required like weeks of hospitalization and stuff. And, you know, like they get a bill for like a million dollars. Can you like some, oh you know, some like gosh. labor? I'm like, can you imagine? Okay, like, congratulations. You survived. It took four weeks. It was hellish. You survived. Here's the bill. It's a million dollars. Like, <laughs> your yeah. life will never be the same. No. You know, and like, that's just baffling. That's, to me, that's almost as scary as, as having to go through a terrible illness like that. It's like it's it's like a two pronged like fear, right? There's like the economic uh, a catastrophe waiting for you if you do survive. It's just so, yeah, it's so horrible. I I really that needs to change. I think like that's got to be the priority. Yeah in in the u.s and because i mean yeah i grew up australia has medicare um and it's it's very different to your medicare like i could see a doctor on any side of the country and it's covered like there's no networks or anything like that um and then living in canada it's like yeah i get healthcare here too i just Mm -hmm. can't imagine can't imagine that yeah I, I was using early on. We were, I was with my my father. And I was going, all right, put on your mask, Dad. Like, I know you. It won't kill you. You're a horse, but um, the medical <laughs> bills will make you wish you died if you catch it. You know, like put on your mask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, you're right. Um, which is, it's you know, it's it's you you know we can laugh about, it, but yeah, it's really terrifying. Yeah. and and it's just it, it's it's hard to imagine that like a country so rich could put people in a position where they would um, not seek medical treatment for, for various things, whatever, however small it may be uh, because they could bankrupt them. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they could like lose everything. Yeah. That's just, it's just, it's, 
just mind blowing that that's like a thing that exists, and not not just occasionally, but prevalent. Yeah, often. And that like, would happen to most, with so many people. Yeah, yeah, it's really scary, um, and yeah. it kind of like it does. I think in a way reflect what we were talking about earlier with housing is just healthcare is kind of a, a monetary opportunity for a lot of people. And there is this culture of just buying more and more and making more and more at whatever cost <laughs> to right. somebody else. Right. Yeah, and, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, like, you know, worker productivity has just just shot up in recent decades, you know. We can do so much more with, uh, I guess, a lot has to do with the technology and the tools we have, and, you know, we can accomplish so much more, and there's been no uh, wage increase to go along with that. Um, so we're, it, we're, we're making leaps on one hand, and then we're, we're falling terribly behind on the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something like yeah. uh, uh, the average worker can... So what would take a week in the 70s would now take a day or something along those lines. Like, it's pretty drastic. And we don't necessarily... Oh, yeah need to do more like obviously there there are more things to be done as there are more people and things like that but it should be like cool I just get to like work one day a week and then I can raise my family make art play sport do whatever right yeah it's pretty significant um but anyway yeah if you could yeah. just let us know where people can find your book because oh, yeah. I've been really enjoying it. And it's opened, as someone who, you know, immerses themselves in housing, there's just so much stuff in there that I hadn't even come across before. So it's quite fascinating to learn about all of oh, the I'm sides glad. of that. Because, yeah, it's, it's never just one, a, a financial crisis doesn't happen for one reason. Right, right. And yeah, it really, yeah, it's like a sort of, it's cliche to say, like the perfect storm or death by a thousand cuts or something you can come at it whichever way but yeah so the book is called underwater uh how our american dream of home ownership became a nightmare and it's hopefully available everywhere um you know your uh whether your amazon or bookshop.org which um i think uh i don't know if they have that in canada but that's a, a way for uh like local mom and pop stores to fulfill internet orders uh to, to people who are who want to shop online but support the local business uh, hopefully bookstores uh, have it. And, um, you know, it's available, obviously, in hardcover, ebook, and, and even uh, audible, uh, audiobook. I almost said book on tape, which shows you I'm old enough to know what that is. Um, <laughs> oh, <my laughs> I'm trying to correct myself, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, it, and it, it sort of, it, it covers the whole, like, sort of the, the time right before when the market was red hot in around 2003 to 2006. And then all the way till uh, the pandemic in terms of sort of the, the roller coaster ride we went on in housing. And I used my own example of buying a house and um, making a big financial mistake mm -hmm. of buying a house when and where I did um, and how that all played out and how sort of the decisions on Wall Street and in Washington and at the local bank all sort of affected uh, and the local city councils and planning commissions all sort of 
tied in to affect uh, the ho- the prices of homes in my neighborhood, including mine, um, and sort of what came after, uh, which was the sort of the, the rise of the Wall Street landlord um, and how that was born from the crash and how uh, that is a, a very a powerful force in today's housing market, these companies that own tens of thousands of uh, tidy suburban rental homes. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me uh, talk about it. And I've enjoyed it. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan December. You can click on the show notes to get a link to his book, Underwater. Now, I'm not going to make any promises about when the next episode will be out um, because I am just getting back into things, but I will be continuing with this housing theme when I do. You can follow me on Twitter at Talia Murdoch and find the whole network, which has a lot of shows and streams at Cape Goblins across all social media platforms. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I'm Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Second Bananas is a history podcast. Uh, actually, it's a comedy podcast. We're doing a podcast? Shut up. We're recording. Look, check out our show if you want to hear us discuss, dissect, and dunk on history's greatest Garfunkels. Every other Tuesday on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.